my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello, I'm Eric. Welcome to another great episode of Our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. I am here with Jeremy Helliger, who is executive editor at People Magazine. Jeremy is an editor and writer who's contributed to such publications as Variety, HuffPost, Reader's Digest, and The Root. Jeremy's also the author of two books, the 2014 memoir, Is It True What They Say About Black Men? Tales of Love, Lust, and Language Barriers on the Other Side of the World, and Storms in Africa, A Year in the Motherland, which was published in 2020. Jeremy joins me to share his professional journey as an editor and writer and international traveler. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Yes, thank you for joining me. I mentioned before the recording, Jeremy has a great Zoom ready background. So <laughs> <laughs> very tropical. Very tropical. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So where are you based? I'm based in New York. So it's really cold outside, but judging from the background, you would think I'm in Miami or something, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was actually in Sweden when I originally reached out to you. I'm back in Los Angeles. So I uh, have an idea of the cold now. <laughs> Oh, wow. Sweden is one country I've never been to that I would love to visit. I definitely recommend it. Stockholm, I love. I hope to live there or to make that my home base. Definitely give it two thumbs up. (laughs) (laughs) So to kind of get us settled into where we're at now, how's your weekend review? Well, actually, this week I've been closing People Magazine's Black History Month issue, which I put together. And the issue revolves around Black dynasties. So we're talking to a lot of prominent Black people whose parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles were or are Black icons. For instance, we talked to Harry Belafonte's daughter, Sherry Belafonte. We talked to Richard Pryor's daughter, Rain Pryor. We talked to... T.J. Jackson of the Jackson family, Tito Jackson's son. So um, it's going to be a really exciting issue. Oh, nice. I look forward to reading it. I just actually just watched the Janet Jackson documentary from Lifetime. That documentary was interesting. I actually read a quote yesterday where Janet Jackson said that she was worried that it would be too boring. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of people complained that it didn't really reveal anything. But for me, the one thing I loved, I never really heard Ruby Jackson, the oldest Jackson speak. And it was so interesting hearing how unfiltered and how different, you know, the other Jacksons are so controlled and composed when they express themselves. But Ruby is kind of unfiltered and just, she just like tells it like it is. It's really funny. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, because she's the one that I don't think has really grown up in the public eye as a child. Yeah, she had one hit, Centipede, in the 80s. But when she had that hit, she was already in her early 30s. When the Jacksons broke, she was probably around 17, 18. So she had a completely different experience. Hmm. Well, yeah, again, I look forward to the publication, the issue for people. But yeah, Black Dynasties, I actually really like that. Because just for me, it's a reminder of the realities that we have legacies too that span generations. And not only that, but just because of the situation that Blacks in America found themselves in 400 years ago, 300 years ago, 200 years ago, we don't have the same kind of recorded traditions that white Americans do because, you know, slaves didn't necessarily have birth records. They were ripped apart from their families and blacks don't have the same legacy of inherited money. You don't really have a lot of old money in the Black community. So I think this was a really good way to nod 
to that dynastical element that Blacks have been able to create for themselves over the last century. Speaking of legacies in America, I detect, if my ear is correct, an accent. (laughs) Yes. I was actually born in the Virgin Islands, Uh, moved to the mainland when I was really young, but my mom is from Antigua and my dad is from St. Martin. So I grew up around a lot of people with Caribbean accents, which is why I think I never really lost it. You know, when you're young, you want to be like everyone else. And so I wanted to lose the accent so badly. And some members of my family were able to do that, but I never really did. And now that I'm older, I actually am glad that I never did. I mean, from my perspective as an American, I really like accents. And I know we all have one. But um, when someone comes here from somewhere else, I just think that adds more interest to them. Yeah, accents and immigration, that's the foundation of the United States. And it's something that a lot of Americans seem to have forgotten. Mm. Before I get into really asking about you, I have to say I came across one of your interviews with Alexander Skarsgård. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, oh, my God, he got to interview him. (laughs) So nice. Such a nice guy. And very tall, very tall. That's what I've heard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you are executive editor of People Magazine. How long have you been in that position? Well, I've been in that position probably about seven months. But the interesting thing is that I started my career at People Magazine in the 90s. I started there as an intern right out of college. And about a year ago, the editor-in-chief Dan Wakeford reached out to me out of the blue and wanted to know if I was back in the United States because I was living abroad for 13 years. And he wanted to know if I would be interested in coming back. And so seven months after coming back, you know, here I am putting together the Black History Month issue. (laughs) So it's like a full circle. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a full circle. You know, I mentioned earlier that I came across you through your book, Is It True What They Say About Black Men? For me, I was at the time starting to travel back and forth, well, not living, but just as a visitor going mainly to Sweden. And I was looking at that point for just more similarities to people like me, someone who's Black, but someone who's also gay. So that's how I first came across you as a writer. And I really enjoyed the book and that you were so candid about your experiences. How did that come about, you uh, opening up about that? Thank you so much. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, The book actually started as a blog. After I left the United States, I took about a year off from writing. I was just burnt out, you know. And I remember I had a friend and he introduced me to a friend of his who said, well, you know, you're a writer, so you should still write. You know, it doesn't have to be for your job, but you can start a blog. So I started a blog in 2008 called Theme for Great Cities. And it's interesting because I was living in Buenos Aires. That was where I first moved after leaving the United States. And I actually met a couple of people. One of my best friends now, Rob, I met him through the blog. He contacted me out of the blue and said, I love your blog. I'm moving to Buenos Aires. I'd love to meet. And we ended up becoming really good friends. And another time I was in Berlin and I was at a nightclub (laughs) and this guy was kind of staring at me. And then he walks up to me and he goes, you're Jeremy Helliger, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I love your blog. So the idea that I was reaching, you know, Black men around the world, you know, really excited me because I just sort of created this blog for fun. I wasn't expecting anyone to read it. I just wanted to write about my experiences and the fact that I was reaching people and entertaining people and people were saying, oh, my God, I've had such similar experiences really moved me. And... uh, it led to me deciding to sort of take some of the blog posts and expand them and create this book documenting the first half of my expat journey. And then when I was living in Australia, I met a guy and 
he ended up inspiring a lot of the book. And I actually used a synonym <laughs> for him. Uh-huh. But the interesting thing now is we're now married. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, we reconnected. We didn't speak for like six years. And then we reconnected. I went back to Melbourne to house it in 2019. It's funny because a friend of mine who read the book, she said, I don't believe you've heard the last of Shane. That story isn't over. And I always thought, what are you talking about? She said, I'm sure that he's going to find out about the book and read it and contact you, which didn't happen. But I still ended up reaching out to him. One day I decided that, you know, hey, I'm just going to reach out and see how he's doing. And I did. And one thing led to another. And he ended up coming back to the United States with me. And we got married right before COVID hit. We got married. So we've spent the entire pandemic together. And so here I am. Here we are. (laughs) That's like a movie in the making. (laughs) Yeah, it's really crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, but in sharing what you just shared, it's like the power of social media and then the thirst, of course, from my own personal experience, but the thirst for stories like yours for us Black gay men. It's like really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So had you been traveling a lot internationally for work or just in your personal life before you left the U.S.? Yes. I went abroad for the first time as an adult in 1993, I think it was. I went to Bermuda with the rest of the crew at work, People Magazine. They like, had like an offsite in Bermuda. And that kind of inspired me. So after that, I said, every year I want to visit at least one new country. So I would take off for a couple of weeks every year. You know, one year I took all my vacation time, four weeks at once. And I went to London. I went to Prague. I went to Budapest. I went to Vienna. And in Prague, actually, I met a guy who was a Black guy who was living in London at the time. And we ended up keeping in touch and we're still friends to this day. So I did manage to see a lot of the work and meet some really unforgettable people, some of whom have stayed in my life. Buenos Aires came about because one of the final places that I visited on my quest to visit a new country every year was Argentina. I went to Argentina and I fell in love with Buenos Aires. One morning I woke up and I was walking around Recoleta, which is a neighborhood there. And I just said, I love this city. So after a couple of visits there, I bought an apartment there, intending it to be more of an investment than anything else. And on that trip, At the time I was working for teen people as deputy editor. And on that trip, I got word that the magazine was folding. And my boss was my best friend. She was trying to shield me from that news because she didn't want to ruin my trip. And so I took that as a sign. I said, okay, I just bought an apartment here. It's time for me to wrap up in the United States and just come here and see what happens. Mm. So I went back to the United States. I sort of like tied up some loose, loose ends. You know, they gave me a nice package. So I was able to survive for like a year or so. And intending to go for six months to a year, not really intending to stay there. And then coming back to the US, I ended up staying there for two and a half years. It was unexpected, but That first trip changed my life and then moving there changed my life because, you know, shortly after I moved there, a friend of mine said to me, you know, it takes a lot of guts to move to a foreign country where A, you don't speak the language and B, you don't know anyone. It wasn't even a testament to my bravery. What it did is it put me at the bottom of the hierarchy. You know, I was an outsider. I had to sort of assimilate in my own way. I had to learn their language, their customs. I think a lot of Americans are very arrogant and they think that they're the center of the universe and they travel and they just speak English to anyone and they don't really have respect. You know, I have a friend who I used to travel with 
And she would always say things like, well, it's not how it is in America. And I just always thought that was such a disrespectful thing to say because America isn't the center of the universe. And so it really taught me humility. But even beyond that, living in America, you can get so caught up in career and you can start to define people by what they do and think, well, if you're not doing this or doing that, you're not successful. And in Buenos Aires, it's not a rich country and you encounter a lot of poverty. And it really taught me how to respect people and admire people who were sort of doing the work that a lot of us kind of say, oh, I'll never do that work. I'm glad someone is paid to do that. Like now I have so much respect for the people who clean the toilets. That doesn't necessarily say anything about them. And that work is as important mm -hmm. as the work that anyone else is doing. And they deserve the same kind of respect. You know, in our Black History Month issue, one of my freelancers interviewed Muhammad Ali's daughter, Layla Ali. And she talked about how she would drive around with her father in his Rolls Royce, and they would visit restaurants and hotels. Mm -hmm. And he would always make a point of going up to the service staff and paying attention to them and asking them how they're doing. Because those are the people who think that they're invisible to someone like him. He thought that it was important for them to feel seen and appreciated. And I think that that's one of the things that living abroad and being in situations where it wasn't about having a fancy apartment or driving an amazing car, it really kind of taught me this humility and this appreciation that I didn't have before I left the United States. You know, it highlights as Blacks, we kind of understand on some level being invisible or not being accounted for, but we're still Americans. So, you know, leaving our home country and going abroad, is just a reminder that we're actually much more alike than we realize. And it's so interesting that you say that about Black people knowing that we're Americans, because I lived on every continent except Antarctica. And I feel that the fact that I was a Black American really helped me in a lot of ways. Like racism is so complicated. People who don't step outside of the United States bubble don't even realize how complicated it is. You know, when I was living in Bangkok, for instance, I kind of got a little bit closer to a local. I would often see something in them shift as soon as they realized that I was from the United States and not Africa. And when I visited the Middle East, I spent a lot of time in Israel. And I remember going to the church of the Nativity on Bethlehem and people just reacting to me in this really interesting, special way. I was not a Black African, so I feel like they were showing me a certain level of respect that they wouldn't have shown me if I were from an African country. Mm. And at the same time, I was not a white American, so they were showing me a respect that they didn't necessarily have for white Americans. So it kind of put me on a different level in a sense, which was really interesting and actually a little bit disconcerting for me because I wasn't expecting that. But then I also spent a year living in Africa. I have a very complicated relationship with the Black community in the United States because coming to the mainland from the Virgin Islands, I had an accent. I was very different. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Moonlight, it's in three different sections. In the middle section, where he's in school and being bullied by the other Black kids, that part of the movie really touched me because that was my experience. I dealt with racism from the white kids, but I dealt with a lot of xenophobia and homophobia from the Black kids because I was so different. I was maybe not masculine enough, and I talked with an accent. And... I was bullied and beaten up. So I grew up kind of confused because I thought, okay, I'm being disinvited to birthday parties by the white kids <laughs> and the black kids 
are beating me up and picking on me. So where do I fit in? And I remember landing in Johannesburg and just feeling for the first time in my life that I was home. Really? It sounds kind of hokey to say this, but I felt like, oh my God, these are my people. There are more similarities between African culture and Caribbean culture than there are between Caribbean culture and Black American culture. So I feel like I found that link. And that's where I gained an appreciation, not just for the global experience of Black people, but I think it helped me understand the experience of Black Americans also. And it helped me feel closer to Black Americans. And it's when my activism began. It's when I started writing like political and social articles talking about my experiences as a Black man. And I remember going to the Nelson Mandela Museum in Johannesburg, and there was um, an exhibit. I hope I don't get the name of this book wrong. I always do. It's called The House of Bondage. And it was based on a book that was created by a Black photographer and a writer. So he would go around taking pictures. The photographer would take all of these pictures of Blacks during the apartheid era and document the Black experience. And he had a writer who would write essays to go along with the photos. You know, there was this exhibit, plus it was the Nelson Mandela Museum. So there was a permanent exhibit about Nelson Mandela. I remember sitting down on a bench and just, I started bawling because I saw the link in Africa and the Black experience in the United States. I saw the link between Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr. I realized how, you know, there's a difference between Black Africans, Black Caribbeans, Black Americans, but we're all united by these overlapping experiences in different parts of the world. That experience changed me forever. You're like the second person that I've interviewed. A woman I interviewed from Barbados shared about discovering how many uh, similarities that those from the Caribbean have with those from the continent of Africa. It kind of reinforces for me as a Black American, you know, being in Europe for two years, how Eurocentric we are as Black Americans. I don't think we can realize it if we don't leave the country. Because we're not as aware culturally or in some of our customs of the things that were taken away from us very early on. So yeah, your experience kind of highlights that. You know, what's really interesting, several years ago, I wrote an essay called Why Wasn't Barb Marley More Appreciated by Black America? You know, Barb Marley is one of the most iconic Black figures in music, but he never had an American hit. Okay, he had big hits in the UK. And he's big among white students on college campuses. But I don't feel he's ever really been a superstar with Black Americans. And that bothered him during his lifetime. He wanted to reach Black Americans, and he felt that he wasn't. And till the day he died, that was something that really upset him. And he felt that he had come short in that area. And I just remember going into restaurants in Johannesburg and Cape Town and hearing Bob Marley music playing. You know, I knew Bob Marley through the movie you heard at white fraternity parties in college, like Get Up, Stand Up, Could You Be Loved? I didn't realize how much depth there was to Bob Marley's music. You know, there's so much to it. There's so much activism and, you know, righteous anger. And he was, in a lot of ways, doing what early rap did for Black Americans. And I don't know if it's because, you know, there's like a certain like anti-Caribbean thread. I don't know, because I felt that growing up, and I don't know if that's like a widespread thing. I wish that more Black people, Black Americans, were able to see the experiences of other Black people around the world and to sort of not only gain knowledge by that, but I think kind of find comfort in it because I found a lot of comfort in the fact that it wasn't just us. 
That kind of goes back to we're not the center of the universe here in the States. <laughs> yeah. You've kind of talked about some of your writing now, but what is your professional and educational background? I studied magazine journalism. I went to the University of Florida. So my degree is in magazine journalism. My minor is in business administration. And as I mentioned, I started my career at People Magazine. So I was a celebrity journalist, an entertainment journalist for my entire time living in the United States after college and working in the United States. You know, I remember my sister, <laughs> at one time, my sister said to me, you're such a talented writer. And sometimes I feel like a lot of your talent is going to waste, <laughs> which sounds really harsh, <laughs> but it was something I never forgot. And at the time, I was a little bit annoyed that she'd said that, but now I understand what she meant. And I feel that it wasn't until I left the United States and I started writing about my experiences as a Black person. And that led to me writing, not just from a personal level, but on a social and political level as well, that I felt I was doing something important and that I felt really good about what I was doing. A couple of years ago, right after the George Floyd incident happened. Mm -hmm. I grew up listening to country music and there's a country group called Lady Antebellum that changed their name to Lady A because they didn't want to be associated with the Confederacy. And in changing the name to Lady A, there's a black musician, blues musician in Seattle, a black woman who was using the name Lady A. So they ran into like a, a bit of legal entanglement with her and ended up suing her for use of the name. Suing her. <laughs> yeah. So in changing their name in order to sidestep accusations of racism, they end up suing a Black, a struggling Black musician for use of their new name. And my editor at Variety, she asked me if I wanted to write an essay on Dixie Chicks and how they need to like think about changing their name from Dixie Chicks to something else because of the Dixie. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go there because chicks is kind of problematic too. And people might think that I'm mansplaining. And, and this is a white editor. And she pushed me to write this essay. And it ended up being one of the most important things that I've written in my career. The article was called, Maybe It's a Time for Dixie Chicks to Rethink Their Name. And a couple of days, actually, Dixie Chicks announced that they were now becoming the chicks everyone started covering this event and they all cited the article, the essay that I had written in Variety. I don't think that it was me. I think it was probably something that they were thinking about for a long time, but I wrote this article and I sort of brought it into people's minds. To me, it just helped me to recognize how powerful words can be. As a writer, you feel that you're kind of talking to yourself. Every so often, something like that happens that kind of inspires you to keep going and keep fighting the good fight. Because I get a lot of pushback from racists who want things to remain as they've always been. But when something like that happens, it reminds you of the impact that your words can have. In widening your focus and talking more about political, or racial, LGBT topics, was there an internal adjustment for you as a professional, as a writer? I become more political even when I'm not writing. And sometimes I get the sense that people who've known me for years, some of my white friends, are maybe a little bit taken back and maybe might not be 100% comfortable with it. And maybe might even want, you know, old Jeremy back, who, you know, used to talk about fluffy celebrity stuff, the latest movies he loves, the latest albums he loves. And now even when I write about, or talk about movies I love, there's almost always like a racial undercurrent, you know? So I think that there's definitely been an adjustment in that sense. I've never asked my current boss, but I kind of feel that the shift I made in my career is part of why I ended up back at People Magazine. I feel like he probably read the work that I was doing. He probably felt that I could bring something unique and special 
to the magazine. So I like to think that it's helped me on a consciousness level, but it's also helped me on a professional level. Whenever you write about something that you're passionate about, I think the writing is going to be better. It makes me think of, you know, like authors like James Baldwin. Yeah, he spoke about experiences as a Black man, as a Black gay man. But as someone said to me about writing like yours, it's like, we're not the only ones that need to hear it. And we're not the only ones that relate to it. So it seems like maybe that's what it's doing. You don't want to just be preaching to the choir, you know, and some of the best compliments I've gotten are people who tell me that they don't always agree with what I write, but it makes them uncomfortable, (laughs) but in a good way. And it makes them think that's what I want. We all love to spend time in the um, echo chamber because the echo chamber is reassuring, but sometimes you have to like get out of that echo chamber and put up the dukes a little bit and sort of duke it out with people who don't get it. That's how you really make a difference when you start touching the people that haven't really thought about something that you've written or something that you've said. Your book, Is It True What They Say About Black Men? And then I read a piece you wrote about humor and racism. For me, it's shining more of a spotlight on the racism that exists within the LGBTQ plus community. How has the reception been with you focusing on that too? You know, I always knew being around white people, I always knew that I was different, but I never felt as different as I did in the LGBTQ community because I feel like there's a lot of racism in the community, especially living abroad. The book, Is It True What to Say About Black Men? The title was inspired by how objectified I was by gay men outside of the United States because they all would meet you and they talk about the myth and they'd be interested in you because of the myth. And as a gay black man in the United States, I always felt invisible. I felt ugly. I felt unattractive. My best friend, who's also gay, was tall, white, with blue eyes. He always got all of the attention. I felt that people were always like trampling over me to get to him. And it wasn't until I left the country that I felt appreciated as a Black man. I felt appreciated as a gay Black man for the first time. But in that appreciation, there was like this streak of racism also, where it was all about the objectification and about Black men supposedly being well-endowed and great in bed. And that's what a lot of people were interested in. They weren't interested in me as a person. They were interested in me as the Black guy. It's been like a really screwed up experience. And I'm not sure what kind of experience you've had. I didn't feel invisible abroad, but I was dealing with like a different strain of racism. After I left Australia in 2017, I spent two years wandering around Eastern Europe. Three months in Belgrade. I spent five weeks in Sarajevo in Bosnia. I spent three months in Kiev. And I remember going on Grindr. You deal with a lot of people who like speak English as a second language and their exposure to Black people have been largely through the media, specifically hip hop. They hear rappers using the N-word. And so they think it's okay to approach you using the N-word and sort of using that language that a white person in America who didn't want to be considered racist would never publicly use, but they were using these words and these phrases. You know, I remember writing an article for Variety about, you know, maybe it's time for rap to rethink the use of the N-word. I don't think anything I've ever written has gotten more pushback. Black Twitter was furious <laughs> with me. They came after me hard. I feel like, again, there's this American-centric thinking that a lot of times when people think of their experience, they think of their experiences as Americans and they don't think of what's going on outside of that little bubble. 
I understand why the N-word was co-opted. The same reason why gay and queer have been co-opted by gay people. But I think it's important to be aware of the negative impact that can have. Because a lot of people on the other side of the world, the only experience they're having with Black people is through these records. And they think it's okay to use the N-word. Yeah, I can say that I relate to both experiences that you've shared about being in the States and then also traveling abroad of somewhat feeling invisible in the larger gay community. And then as you shared about traveling abroad, it's like, yeah, I felt American for the first time. I remember that years ago, the first time I left, but, you know, saying, oh my God, I think they're interested in me, but I feel like there's still an undercurrent of something else going on here. (laughs) And having that internal dialogue with myself, like, I want to not discount it, but I don't want to ignore it at the same time. I've had this discussion with a lot of Black men living abroad and the guy that I mentioned earlier who I met through my blog, like he and I became really good friends and we had so many discussions about this. And I remember (laughs) we would go out to bars and clubs and the reaction of the locals, you know, once I remember we overheard someone saying something like, Dos pijas negras, which is two black penises, literally. I didn't know the first word. (laughs) My friend and I were walking around, we're hanging out, and someone actually looked at us, and we weren't two black guys or two guys, we were two black penises. (laughs) And it makes you think, who else is looking at us and thinking that? It's a global thing. You mentioned that you lived outside of the U.S. I'm guessing I was a digital nomad for, was it 12, 13 years? The first few years, two or three years, I was just pretty much partying. (laughs) And I also spent two and a half years in Sydney where I had a full-time job. It was running a website, so it was digital, but I wasn't really nomadic. Okay. What was your reasoning for returning to the States? I kind of knew after I left Australia, that that's where everything was heading. I mentioned that I was traveling around Eastern Europe for a couple of years. I tried to drag that out as long as possible. I was supposed to go back to the United States, but then my friend wanted me to house sit for her in Melbourne. And then I reconnected with my ex who became my husband, dragged him (laughs) to the United States with me. But I think Reconnecting with him kind of gave me permission to go back because I knew I'd be going back to a different life, to a different experience. I would also get to experience the United States through my own eyes after not having lived there for so many years, but also through his eyes because he'd been to the United States, but he'd never lived in the United States. I would have come back eventually anyways, but I think that made me feel like safe. Okay. I felt safe coming back. Now, you mentioned that your sister encouraged you to look at your writing differently, but for you, when did you discover your gift for writing? I think I never thought I had a gift. I always had really great grades on my writing assignments, but it wasn't until I was in high school when... My zoology teacher, Coach Barrett, who will always mention this on Facebook, if I post anything on Facebook, he'll come in and talk about how he was my first journalism teacher. (laughs) He got me to um, join the high school newspaper, St. Cloud High School in St. Cloud, Florida. I remember the first thing I wrote, this is going to date me, (laughs) but the first thing I wrote was a review of Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation album. Okay. That went over so well. It was the first inkling I had that maybe I could take this a little bit further. And so when I got to college at the University of Florida, I started writing for the entertainment section of the college paper, the Independent Florida Alligator. And I worked my way up to being the editor I think by then I realized that I had a talent and this is what I wanted to do with my life. 
And so I've been doing it ever since. Was there any, I don't want to say pushback, but encouragement to maybe focus on other things that seem more traditional and safe? You know, my mother will tell anyone who meets her to this day that I actually decided what I wanted to be when I was 10. Because when I was 10, I won a transistor radio at an auction. Like my fifth grade teacher used to have auctions and we had an auction and I won a transistor radio. That's when I really became passionate about music. That's when probably around when I started writing. And I remember I watched this show. I forgot the name of the show. That Lisa Robinson was the host. And Lisa Robinson is a famous rock journalist. She called herself a rock journalist. And I remember thinking, that's what I want to be. I want to be a rock journalist. And my mother will tell you, I ran up to her one day and I said, mom, I want to be a rock journalist. And she'll say she didn't have any idea what that was. <laughs> but she knew that if I wanted to be a rock journalist, I would be a rock journalist. So she always encouraged me. I never got any pushback. She never told me that she wanted me to do anything else. And that's what I became. My initial entry into journalism was writing about music and interviewing music celebrities, doing record reviews. So I did what I set out to do. Well, your mom and your sisters, you're lucky that you had a, a great community within your family to support you. Yeah, not just the women in my family, but I have an older brother who is also gay and he has been very influential in my life. I had a strong mother, a strong father, strong sister. I wanted to ask you, too, about your book, Storms in Africa. How did that project come about? That's a much quieter book. By then, I had gone through the transition from the party era me, who was out there meeting people and like having these wild experiences, to being a little bit more contemplative. You know, in the introduction, I say most of it unfolds in my head. And so it's me sort of making sense of what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing. A large part of the book is dedicated to when I went on an African safari in Tanzania. And so obviously there are not gonna be a lot of funny anecdotes. It's about what I learned while I was on that safari. Storms in Africa is very special to me because my husband designed the cover. He designed the cover and the back cover. I brought him a bunch of photos that I took while I was on the safari. And he took a couple photos that he really liked and he kind of blended them together into one photo. I don't know how he did it, but he blended them together into one photo that really for me captured what was going on inside of me while I was in Africa. You know, the book Storms in Africa, I took it from a song by Enya, of all people. And in the picture, there's a zebra and there are storm clouds over the zebra. I talked to you about going to the Nelson Mandela Museum and being very unsettled by that experience. And I think I carried that unsettled feeling with me throughout the entire year mm. that I was in Africa. It was a beautiful experience. But in a lot of ways, it was a difficult experience. What do you mean by that? Just because I think I had to come to terms with a lot of things I had never thought about. It was the first time I thought about my experience with Black Americans. I really started to come to terms with that and think about that. In my previous work, I was so focused on my experience with white people and the racism I felt I experienced at the hands of white people that I didn't really think that much about my experience with black people and how that shaped me in a lot of ways shaped me just as much, if not more than my experience with racism and white people. It was unsettling, but still beautiful because Cape Town, where I was based, is just the most beautiful city. You just meet these amazing people. You meet these amazing, proud Africans, Black Africans. I felt so welcomed and appreciated by them. 
despite the storm inside, I felt safe. And it's funny because I remember when I was on the um, safari, I, I went on a group safari and I was talking to a Dutch family. South Africa has a reputation for being dangerous. Cities like Johannesburg and Cape Town. And I was talking to a white Dutch family. They heard it was very dangerous, so they didn't feel very safe there. And I, I hear that a lot. And I always think, wow, that's not how I felt at all. I would take walks in the middle of the night and feel totally safe. And maybe it's because as a Black person, I didn't feel threatened by other Black people. I'm not saying that there's not unsafe aspects of cities like Johannesburg and Cape Town, but I feel that, you know, a lot of white people, they come there and they see a bunch of Black people and they like clutch their purses and they go, oh my God, something's going to happen to me. And I feel like a lot of that plays in to the reputation. The entire time I was in Cape Town, the one person that ripped me off was a white South African. So there you go. That thing of perceptions again, and not to ignore what may have some truth, but to, I know for me to dissect how much of it may be still propaganda. I have this experience with racism in the United States. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. I remember going to Asia for the first time and how there's so much anti-Asian racism in the gay community. And on the dating sites, people would say things like, no Asians, no Asians, which just really upset me. And I would confront them and say, why are you doing this? And they would say, well, it's just my preference. And I would say, well, no, it's not just your preference because a preference is saying, I like peanut butter better than jelly. What I want these people to do is for them to think about why to feel this way? Why am I in the middle of Bangkok, a city with so many beautiful Asian men and women? And why am I saying I don't find Asian men attractive? I didn't catch that, that being in these countries, people are still saying that. That's quite powerful. <laughs> when I left the United States, no one was using dating apps. And when I came back, I came back with my husband. So I've never experienced what it's like in the United States. I imagine that people would say things like no Blacks, I imagine, because I have Black friends who've told me that is the case. But I will tell you a story. When I was living in Cape Town, I had a friend, a Black guy. I remember the first night we met, we just like sat in a corner and just shared stories. And he told me the story of this guy that he approached a white South African who he approached on Grindr. Mm -hmm. And he just said something like, how are you doing? And the guy wrote back, I'm sorry, but I do not cross the color lines. My friend, he wanted to hear my reaction to that. I just thought, oh, what a racist pig. And he said, well, it's more than that. Just the words that he used, the formality, shows how systemic it is. It's like there had been a racial line drawn, and he wasn't going to dare cross it. I mean, I had a lot of really tough conversations with the Black community who would say, well, why are you even dealing with these white guys? And I haven't really figured out how to answer that. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a headline on Medium where someone said, can you be in an interracial relationship and be a Black activist? I'm in an interracial marriage and I call myself a Black activist, but I don't know. Like, is there something there? I don't know. I've had a lot of discussions. I've received a lot of criticism and I haven't come up with the perfect answer yet or an answer that I'm really comfortable with yet. Just in general, walking around in everyday life, I think that's the question that may needle us in most of our daily interaction is, you know, I want to make sure that I am doing as much as I can to make all of our lives a little bit better. But how do you do that and still exist in the world? Yeah. One of the things that really was interesting in putting together the Black History Month issue is how many of the Black icons that we were paying tribute to, how many of the kids that were paying tribute to them were products of interracial relationships? So many of them. And you just think back about the history of Black people in the United States. I mean, 
at one point, Black slaves were being raped by their masters. Much more than we know or we admit to. Most Black people in the United States have white ancestors. So there's been this whole history where interracial relationships are so fraught in this country, but so many of us are products <laughs> in some way of them. Well, it sounds like similar to what you do in your work and making things uncomfortable, but in a good way, you're allowing yourself to kind of do the same for your own well-being. Writing is not only about expression, but it's about learning. One last question for you as a gay man, had you ever needed to adjust who you are as part of yourself as gay when you've been traveling or living abroad? So interesting that you would ask that because, um, you know, I've been out since I was 22, but I wrote an essay about when I was in Tanzania because when I told my mother that I was going on the safari, she was worried. So I told her, I'm going to be in Tanzania and then it's going to end in Kenya. She said, well, how did it feel about gay people? Are you going to be okay, you know, traveling like that? I didn't even think about it until she mentioned it. And her mentioning it made me really aware of it. And I wrote an essay about how when I was there, I made a conscious decision to sort of like go back into the closet, be more muted. Or, you know, there's a tribe on the outskirts of the Serengeti called the Maasai tribe. Um, I was hanging out with a couple of men in the tribe and they were asking me how many wives I had. And I got very uncomfortable. I was wearing a t-shirt and shorts and running shoes with fluorescent green shoelaces. And one of the guys said, he has no wives, look at his shoelaces. <laughs> and I don't know what he was getting at. I mean, I took it as being like fluorescent shoelaces, how gay, you know, that's how I took it. Yeah. But he didn't say it in a judgment way or even in a way that made me feel unsafe. His acknowledging it made me stand out the same way I stood out when I was like a Black person in gay bars in the United States. Hmm, food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much. Again, I'm just really honored and grateful that we are connecting. You know, again, I mentioned that I discovered you a few years ago. So for me, this is like, uh, I guess it's a dream. It's like oh, me podcasting you. is not something I plan, but through this platform, I'm remembering all the Black gay people that I've read about or come across in movies or whatever, and you're one of them. So this is just a real honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. And I'm really glad that we did get the chance. Before I forget, uh, where can we find you online? I'm not on Instagram or Twitter or anything like that, but I do have a Medium blog. If you go to Medium and at the end, medium.com slash Jeremy Helliger, or put Jeremy Helliger into the search field, you will find me. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.